Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about nutrient interactions. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a uh, Nutrient Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota, located out of the St. Paul campus. Uh, my specialization is in major macronutrients and their use in the majority of the crop, uh, commodity crop species across the state of Minnesota. I'm Fabian Fernandez, also a nutrient management specialist in the St. Paul campus, and my area of emphasis is in, nut- in nitrogen management uh, and environmental quality aspects of uh, crop production. This is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center here in Waseca, and I, my emphasis is also in nitrogen management and crop production, primarily in corn and soybeans. All right, so starting off, which nutrients are most important for crops and why? Well, when you, you break down nutrients, uh, we talk about uh, two different categories, that being macronutrients, uh, which are nutrients that are, the uptake is measured in pounds per acre, and micronutrients, which the uptake um, typically is going to be less than a pound per acre. You're, you're going to be looking at ounces per acre, so there's not a, a lot of uptake, although some of them can be a little bit more depending on, on whether or not the plant regulates the uptake of that particular nutrient. Uh, for macronutrients, we separate them into two categories. Um, our primary macronutrients, which would be uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and our secondary macronutrients, which um, traditionally have been calcium, magnesium, and sulfur. And the uh, differentiation between the two really has to come with the primary or secondary come down to whether or not historically we need to apply fertilizer and um, or these nutrients are historically deficient within fields so you know a lot of times we you look historically sulfur is lumped as a secondary i mean i almost put that as a primary right now just because of um, some of the responses we've seen out there but the micronutrients um, the main ones uh, boron copper, iron, manganese, and zinc. Um, There's some other ones out there like chloride, uh, nickel, um, molybdenum. Um, There's a few more maybe out there that I'm missing that um, some of them too that which we consider beneficial uh, may not necessarily uh, be quite needed by plants but uh, might benefit their growth in one way shape or form. So when you're looking at them, um, there's a number out there. And I don't know, uh, Jeff, Fabian, am I, am I missing anything um, from that list? Iron and soybeans. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I had said iron and soybeans. But um, we'll talk a little bit about this if we talk about interactions. Because um, as I said, some of these micros, um, if you look at micronutrients, it really depends on the crop in terms of overall need for these. And that's one of the main things. With these nutrients, if you're looking at what you need to apply in a field, um, look at the crop and the sensitivity to a deficiency. Uh, We know that um, for many of our nutrients, pH plays a a very important role when it comes to nutrient availability, but um, also uh, when we come in and look at uh, species, the susceptibility to a deficiency is is kind of key in terms of determining whether or not these um, nutrients are going to be needed for application on a year-to-year basis. Just uh, also a point of clarification, Paul, you ask uh, which nutrients are important, and they're all important. Uh, the, the definition of macro, micro, like uh, Dan was talking about, is, is important, but uh, they are all essential. Uh, without those nutrients, uh, the plant cannot complete its, 
its life cycle. So even though maybe molybdenum is needed or, or boron is needed in a very small amount, without it the plant cannot complete the life cycle. So they are all essential. And also just kind of as a point of, of reference that is kind of interesting, you know, uh, coming from Argentina originally, uh, in Argentina sulfur is more of a primary macronutrient than potassium. Uh, we normally didn't really have issues with potassium. Now we are having issues with potassium or starting to show up just like we are seeing sulfur issues in the U.S. In Argentina, because of the soils and how they developed, it's actually kind of the opposite where potassium was not really a nutrient that you apply, but sulfur is, is part of the, the regular recommendation. And that's a good point, Fabian, because even with calcium and magnesium, there are going to be situations out there where I would say particularly uh, magnesium. Um, we run into some situations where in Minnesota on some very sandy soils, it can be deficient. Um, so it, it really, the verse, the primary versus secondary really is kind of just more or less identified as Fabian was saying at kind of the point of view at which your soils have the capacity to supply that nutrient on an annual basis. So um, we, we say that um, when we look at, again, Minnesota, I think, again, you put four of them up there, um, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur, depending on, on the crop, are really, um, you know, kind of important because those are things that more consistently we see fertilizer being applied to supply those nutrients to crops. What are nutrient interactions and how important are they to crops? Well, one of the things, I guess, to kind of think about is when we start looking at the plant, um, we start talking about all these these nutrients being important and the plants aren't going to be able to complete their life cycle without them but when we start looking at it in terms of uptake is that these nutrients aren't necessarily being taken up independently of one another so when we start talking about interactions what we can see um, is potentially some nutrients if they have a high availability may negatively or positively affect the availability of some other nutrients and one of the things I guess to throw out there that's I think a good example of this when it comes to interactions is um, Fabian mentioned iron earlier for soybean and with iron chlorosis what can happen with nitrate and, and one thing that we see in terms of nitrate how it can affect chlorosis when it, within a given field because if we start talking about nutrient uptake if we get into anions like uh, nitrate um, sulfate uh, chloride, um, some of those negatively charged particles that move into the plant with water. As a plant takes in one element in order to maintain the uptake of other elements, it has to maintain charge neutrality. So in the case of nitrate, as it's taking in nitrate, soybean is typically releasing bicarbonate, which can neutralize acidity around the roots and, and make iron less available. So there's a lot of things that can occur when one nutrient's being taken up by the plant that can affect the uptake of other nutrients. And one thing also to, to mention is that the mechanism of nutrient uptake, uh, it's, you know, there is passive nutrient uptake and there is active nutrient up, uptake. Uh, and the, the plants are able to differentiate between different nutrients. Uh, a lot of times the problem with some of these interactions starts when there is too much like excessive amounts of one nutrient and not enough of another one uh, if if fields are fertilized adequately typically you don't run into those issues it's more of a problem when you just dump a whole bunch of one kind of nutrient and then get things get out of balance uh, and i think this is important to keep in mind because when we start talking about balance um, 
there are some folks that really worry about maintaining uh, a, a correct balance of ions and cations uh, anions in the uh, in the soil and in reality it's, it's I don't think it's that much of a problem if you are doing a, a good job in fertilizing the problem starts when you are just dumping a lot of one thing and not sufficient of something else. Yeah, there's a couple of great examples. As Dan mentioned, the, the antagonistic effects of nutrient interactions like too much nitrate in soybeans and high pH soils leading or contributing to excessive or greater iron chlorosis deficiency. And then also you hear circumstances where we've got too much phosphorus um, resulting in zinc deficiency in some soils. But when we're talking about that situation, it has to be phosphorus greatly in excess of agronomic levels, as Fabian said. So that's, it's kind of over the realm of what we would typically think is an agronomic uh, or, uh, or critical value. It has to be much greater than that. Yeah. And, and, you know, with phosphorus, that's actually a good example. Um, typically, we see really high phosphorus levels where there is manure application, not uh, because of uh, inorganic fertilizers. And when that happens, when the phosphorus is very high because of manure, uh, that's typically not where you will see zinc deficiencies either because when you apply manure, you're also applying a, a fairly good amount of zinc. So the problem is when you're over fertilizing, like you said, Jeff, a huge amount of fertilizer as inorganic phosphorus, and then you can start running into some of those uh, interactions with zinc. And I think that's a really good example um, that was brought up was, uh, with phosphorus and zinc. And, um, you know, we can talk about interactions of nutrients and how they're taken up or interactions within the plant. But one of the other things that we, we can focus on as well as interactions within the soil, because while we know uh, particularly the positive, the cations in the soil will be attracted and held on the cation exchange capacity, there's also anions floating out there that either can form ionic bonds with some of these um, elements or covalent bonds, which I think tends to be what happens with phosphorus, where we have a lot of calcium or if you get free iron and aluminum, they kind of interact and form um, aluminum phosphates, iron phosphates, or calcium phosphates that have varying degrees of solubility in the soil, some which are not very soluble and, and render the phosphorus unavailable to plants. So. I mean, the main thing a lot of times when we look at our, our fertility program, you're looking at, say, your four nutrients or your three or whatever you're putting on and kind of putting them somewhat in silos. But when they hit the soil, there's a lot of things that can happen. And phosphorus is one that um, we're looking at right now with um, a study funded through AFREC looking at timing of fall versus spring application. And, and that's been an interesting study because I kind of expected to not see a lot of difference between fall and spring application but if, when we started I start looking at some of the higher pH soils you look at we, we're sampling um, the soil again in June um, after application either in uh, late October or you know, early to mid-November versus application in late April to early May that there is a big difference in the soil test and what's happened so that leads you to kind of start thinking about how quickly some of these elements can react in the soil and um, for corn especially um, it's been interesting because it's been about a you know six seven bushel yield advantage for the spring application in these um, high really high or these really low pH soils, so below five so these would be situations where there would be a um, greater capacity for that phosphorus to interact with um, um, zinc iron aluminum or calcium in the soil so 
they're really a dynamic system when you start talking about interactions and in viewing things you know we can do it somewhat to view them I think separately particularly with some of the major macronutrients but you get into some of these um, especially interpretations for tissue analysis and a few other things that um, we have to kind of be careful since these things aren't necessarily independent of each other and how the plants utilizing them taking them up or what's happening within the soil itself which nutrient interactions are important and are of concern to crop producers? Well, I think for me that P-Zinc interaction that was brought up gets brought up a lot. Um, I think as um, Fabian and both Jeff had mentioned, though, that it takes, um, and what we typically see is you can you can induce a, a zinc deficiency um, by applying a high rate of P. You know, typically it would take, I think, roughly about 1,000 pounds of MAP or DAP on a soil that's already somewhat marginal in zinc to induce that deficiency. And as... Fabian was saying, um, if you, you look at your soil test, um, particularly in a manure situation where I hear this a lot, people are concerned about the high P in, in zinc, is that if you look at your soil test, your soil test is a good index of availability. So if your zinc test is high, I'm, I'm far less concerned about, um, say, that, that phosphorus-zinc interaction versus if your, um, your zinc, your DTPA test may be around 0.5 or so. Then it might be something to kind of consider, but... Um, that's one I know that, that comes up a lot. And um, the other one um, that's been kind of more recent is this uh, nitrogen by potassium, too. And I don't know, Jeff, we had some good comments, I think, before in, in terms of some thoughts on some of that with, um, you know, some of that N by K interactions. Well, I think we hear a lot from industry agronomists, especially seed agronomists, about the importance of nitrogen uptake late in the in the uh, in the reproductive stages of of our modern hybrids. and it goes along with that interaction with potassium nitrogen and that stay green and that stock quality or stock strength and health of the plant. And whether that is critically important to high yield potential or not, I think there's still some debate about that, especially across areas of the corn belt, some hybrids, maybe more so than others. But clearly there, there is seem, seems to be some relationship there between good K, sufficient K, uh, nitrogen management, or adequate nitrogen and then uh, good stay green and, and hopefully maybe even something like uh, interactions with, uh, with uh, fungicides in corn as well. Yeah, and the other one I hear too at times is um, nitrogen by sulfur. And, um, you know, I've looked at both that nitrogen by potassium, that nitrogen by sulfur, the nitrogen by potassium. We had um, a couple trials out on some irrigated sites. Um, the issue with that was um, the years that we had it, we were so limiting in the nitrogen that I don't think it really mattered the, the potassium. I've also looked at nitrogen by phosphorus. And the interesting thing about phosphorus is that if you look at, say, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, that's the nutrient that tends to act seemingly more independently of the other nutrients. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, I think it's more actively taken up by the plant. So it's not kind of a passive uptake, more of a passive uptake mechanism. So the plant has to expend energy to take it up. So it seems to do it slightly differently um, for that. And what I found with that was interesting is that if you looked at a nitrogen response curve at varying phosphorus levels, is that there was a, a definite yield hit and a consistent yield hit from the phosphorus across all my nitrogen rates. So you're taking a penalty for low N and low P but there was really um, no way that they seemingly, which they can't substitute for each other, but that sometimes you can see where it seemingly um, looks like that there's an interaction. You may be taking less of a yield hit at um, a low phosphor or, or low of one nutrient versus another. But um, it's interesting. And in a lot of this, I think you look at phosphorus in particular, um, 
you, you look at kind of how these things affect growth, and in particular root growth, and we see that I think a lot with um, with low nitrogen. Um, you get in situations, I actually have seen it with low phosphorus where we see a lot of nitrogen deficiency in the low phosphorus plots, and I think a lot of that has to do with poor root growth. So you've got probably enough nitrogen down there, but the roots just aren't at the point at which where they're actively growing. They just can't get down to the point where that where that nitrogen is. So there's um, there's a lot of things I know with that, and then with sulfur, what I saw is um, you know if we're deficient in nitrogen, it really doesn't matter. I mean that's one that particularly corn production is going to hit you first, and that was the interaction I saw between those two is that um, we really weren't seeing any sulfur advantage at low nitrogen levels just because it was just way too deficient. But um, but it's been interesting, and I know Jeff, uh, some of the plots we've had at Waseca, uh, some of the sulfur trials the last few years, looking at some of those control plots. And continuous corn and seeing how nitrogen deficient they are um, and seeing the large yield differentials I mean it leads me to believe you look start looking at that and, and you just you how, how much it, things are set back if one nutrient isn't applied and how that can affect other ones it's just incredible yeah and I think you touched on the the exact key points Dan uh, reduced tillage or conservation tillage which is pretty much widespread across the most of the corn belt corn on corn those environments are the ones where sulfur just seems to be so critical and and uh, a minor what seems like a minor deficiency can result in a huge yield response and it, it's obviously that that nutrients interacting with nitrogen and the crop is just not performing right when it's sulfur deficient it's not it's not developing it's not uh, creating those uh, those uh, proteins that it needs and because of that it's a huge yield penalty yeah um i was also just thinking you know we don't hear too too much sometimes about some of these uh, there are some that are a little bit more obscure uh in terms of either deficiencies or induced deficiencies uh, i remember uh, back when i was doing my phd uh in indiana uh, looking at alfalfa with pnk and um, winter survival and the interaction that you have in those, you know, if you go too heavy on one nutrient and not the other, you would actually have more winter kill of alfalfa with um, than you would with no applying either P or K. And so, again, I think uh, the balance is important in terms of what you do agronomically of applying nutrients. Uh, the other one that I was uh, also thinking about, again, it's been a number of years since I actually heard a case of, but um, uh, nitrogen-induced deficiencies in soybean with uh, boron deficiency. Uh, the plants look like they are nitrogen deficient, but in reality what is going on is that it was boron that uh, was not available or in enough quantities available and, and that restricted the... Um, the interaction with the um, uh, nodules, so the nodules were not fixing nitrogen, and so it looked like a nitrogen deficiency, but it was really masking the fact that it was uh, something else. It was boron or uh, molybdenum. And you can see that with toxicity issues too. I know if you you look through a lot of the micronutrient toxicity problems and look at the uh, actual symptomology, a lot of times the symptomology will mirror a deficiency of another one of the micros. So you can get into situations where you could be diagnosing the wrong problems. So it's it's said it's interesting. You look at how well these things can interact and how one problem can mirror another one. And um, and it's just been it said interesting looking at some of my fields in the, the last few years. The sulfur, as Jeff kind of mentioned, um, 
you know, it's one of the things I've seen quite a lot, and um, we've been seeing um, 30, 40 bushel per acre yield increases in some of my check plots. And I think a lot of that has to do with not necessarily that it's just sulfur alone, that it's sulfur and nitrogen interacting together. And um, it's been interesting because I've been trying to get just clear pictures of sulfur deficiency on um, some late season corn in, in some of my uh, zero sulfur plots. And really what that takes is I've got to put on a really high rate of nitrogen to try to get rid of the nitrogen deficiency. Then I've been able to do it. But um, for the most part, I get out and look at my fields and my fields just look horribly nitrogen deficient um, because that's really one of the things that with plants is typically the most limiting factor. It's kind of goes back to Liebig's law of the minimum is typically what's going to show up. And even if it's one factor affecting another, if it affects the uptake of say nitrogen, you're likely probably going to see nitrogen deficiency show up in the plant versus um, maybe it's it's a different problem. Yeah, that was really interesting. And, and Dan, I think I sent a picture of some of your plots back in late May or early June from the tailgate of a pickup where you could see those plants, those uh, check plot, sulfur check plots were visibly shorter. Well, clearly that was just that the, those plots were stunted growth and that had to be a, I would assume that was a nitrogen sulfur interaction that was stunting their growth. Do you have any tips for analyzing plant tissue to avoid misinterpreting results due to nutrient interactions? You know, this is a really good question because that's one of the things when we look at interactions is that we do have to be somewhat careful if you're taking plant tissue samples that you're not interpreting one thing as being deficient when it may necessarily be another thing. And kind of a few examples of this. Um, if we start looking at, um, say, iron and phosphorus um, deficiencies, sometimes we can actually see the concentrations be really high of these nutrients because the plants are so limited in growth, they're still taking it up. But because the plants are stunted in growth, they can um, they can accumulate these elements in the plant tissue, and it actually can be somewhat higher. But, um, you know, the main thing when I start looking at a lot of questions I get from growers on tissue analysis is what I'll typically do is work through them and start with what you suspect to be most efficient. And that's really, I think, critical when um, trying to make some judgment calls on what to do within fields. It's just to make sure that you're starting with what is most likely to be efficient and then working your way down there. Because it isn't uncommon for me, say nitrogen is, is low or slightly deficient in some of these samples, to potentially see sulfur or potentially see, um, you know, say some of the micronutrients become deficient or at least deficient what we consider deficient based on the tissue analysis report. So that's one of the things that um, the questions that comes out of that is is whether or not if I correct the nitrogen will everything else fall back in line. So that's the thing with these um, these interactions is you know you want to pay attention to some of the major ones. Um, you know another one that's out there that gets talked about a lot is uh, potassium and magnesium and if you look at your numbers for K and mag, in, um, particularly in plant tissue reports, you're going to see an inverse relationship. So if K goes up, magnesium goes down. If magnesium goes up, K goes down. So it's kind of a, you know, you never really know. There's, some, I think, some debate whether or not, um, you know, that's related to soil availability in high mag situations. I think a lot of that has to do with potassium availability um, because the, the, if you look at high K availability, will dry it down, but low K availability will drive magnesium up. It seems like a plant's compensating for the deficiency of one by taking up another one. So that's, it's one of the things to just be aware of um, kind of what's there and then also just be careful so that you're not um, buying inputs that you don't potentially need um, in correcting 
the problem that isn't necessarily the problem that you need to be correcting. Yeah, and another thing with uh, tissue testing too that I often hear is that people are going to a book value to see if they have an issue or a problem with with, with their uh, concentrations. And oftentimes the uh, concentrations that they are looking at from a book, they represent different plant part or an earlier or later development stage in what they have in the field and that it's really trying to compare apples to oranges uh, there is no no way to really use that information and so um, if if you don't have you know a test value that matches what you have as a reference uh, the best thing that I normally tell growers to do is to sample areas in the field where they see the problem and areas where they don't see the problem so that that way at least they can have a, a diagnostic with a similar plant materials and at, at similar uh, development stages. Yeah, and that's one thing they see a lot too because if you look at a lot of our data, um, I've collected a, a, quite a bit of plant tissue data in my time here in Minnesota. We've looked at a lot of things, um, particularly interactions with hybrids and varieties in their environment and there's a lot of things that can occur inside of the plant. Um, the plant gets stressed. I mean it may take up one nutrient, one might accumulate, one may not necessarily be Another may not necessarily be um, utilized or it may decline. So there's there's a lot of things that occur because, again, these things are dynamic. Um, it's not a static system. Um, the plant's taking up multiple nutrients. They all affect each other. And, again, they're all kind of essentially at the mercy of the environment that that plant's growing in that makes it um, – kind of a mess and we're trying to then make a judgment call on what set number if you're above or below this fine line to, as a cutoff point of where either you're good or bad it becomes difficult and I think that's why uh, more recently I, I get a lot more reports on boron being deficient is it's um, some of this interaction with environment and if you get to dry weather conditions um, uptake can be slowed of that particular nutrient and it wouldn't surprise me to see more samples come back low even though probably isn't anything to do with the fact that um, the boron was needed in those fields. It's just essentially that at that po key point in time, it's you're getting a snapshot in time that um, it just wasn't necessarily available or it wasn't going to that plant part. So this is the, the kind of the thing with with interactions. I said we talk about interactions with nutrients against each other, but you, there's just a it's so much more of a dynamic system in terms of um, the plant, how it interacts in the in the in the environment itself. So it's it's one of the things that I just really stress if you have questions and you, you get reports back and something seems a little bit funny out there is that there are differences in kind of opinions on sufficiency values and a lot of that has to do with um, a lot of what Fabian was talking about essentially is um, a lot of these numbers are really set for a particular part sample at a particular time and that's really important to remember when you're taking samples that you're not just going out there and grabbing sa any samples you want out of the field. You have to be have a really good uh, plan in terms of what you're doing to make sure you're getting the most out of your results. Yeah, and in general, talking about environmental conditions, uh, in general, the concentrations go down as the plant gets bigger. So um, that happens just under normal conditions, but uh, it also happens when you have very, very fast growth. Uh, for instance, uh, it's not unusual with uh, corn, soybean that we plant and it's cool. It doesn't really grow very well. And then all of a sudden it starts growing really fast because conditions really uh, improve. It gets, you know, uh, 
good uh, sunlight and, and temperatures and the plants just really shoot up really fast and then the concentrations dropped quickly uh, and that's typically where we see some of the major issues is that um, those concentrations get diluted and, and, and people start wondering why they are so low when in reality it's just a dilution effect uh, just because of given by the growth of the plant. And I see that with K a lot. Um, some of my really high yielding sites, a lot of times you'll see, you'll, you'll take ear leaf tissue and the numbers will be really low. And I think it's just as Fabian knows the dilution effect. So it's one of the things to kind of watch out for on that, that it's just not necessarily that it's needed. It's just, you know, the plants utilizing it more efficiently or more effectively. So and as you, the plant ages, you're going to see the concentrations decline as well as the as the seeds being developed, because a lot of the efforts by the plants can be put into uh, developing that seed. So it's one of the things you just have a plan and make sure you know what you're doing and not just going out there and just taking random samples um, because you you may not understand what you're going to have have a good understanding of um, what you get back because it may not make a whole lot of sense just because it's not sampled correctly. You know, the other thing we sometimes see not only in the tissue but also in the grain is the luxury consumption. You know, nutrients like potassium and phosphorus in particular, the plant can take up excess more than it needs and have a higher concentration, you know, significantly higher than its critical value. And that can result in higher concentrations of removal in the grain, even though the crop really doesn't need all that. It just, it's using, utilizing it and taking it up anyway. Any last words from the group? Well, just as I said before, if you have any questions, if you get a soil test report back, um, you know, that's why, that's what we're here for as ex extension specialists is just ask us if you're wondering on any of these interactions that might maybe going on in the field i mean tissue analysis is a good way to look at if you've got a problem area of the field but it isn't always straightforward because of something things that can happen within the plant but you know we're here for that and um, to answer questions on some of this stuff so it's uh, one of the things i'd encourage anybody um if they're looking for a secondary opinion and um just want a, a second um just judgment on what what's going on with some of their samples feel free to give us a call or drop us an email yeah, and I would just say that the uh, the, sem the tissue sample is basically one tool in the toolbox, and that's the way we should look at it. We should never look at it as the sole source of information when we have a, a problem that is developing in the field. Use that against everything else that you may have, whether it's uh, soil test information, weather conditions, um, has this problem happened before? Those, all that information is really important to kind of put it all together to to come to a an understanding of what may be happening. So don't take it for the face value uh, at at first glance because there could be a lot of uh, misleading <laughs> issues with that. And I think I would I would say that you know if you think there's a nutrient interaction that's limiting your crop growth or your or your yield in a field, it it, it probably has to be one of those two or three common ones that we mentioned. It's probably not anything that's too unusual or something that we didn't discuss because it, they're, they're just not very likely. All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>